Hello, and welcome to the Stateside Madness Podcast, the one and only podcast of the official Madness American fan service. I'm Lori, along with my co-host Polly, here to bring you news, reviews, and deep dives into the nutty sound of the British pop band Madness. Hi, welcome. This is episode two of Stateside Madness. I'm Lori. And I'm Polly. So uh, this is this is our second episode of the official Stateside Madness podcast. Our first episode was two weeks ago. We talked about uh, Work, Rest, and Play, the Madness EP. Um, that was a lot of fun. I loved that first episode. I loved making it with you, Polly. What did you think? I, well, it was a new experience. I'm, I'm not uh, that familiar with podcasts, and I... Uh, I wanted to help you out, and I thought it would be a, a fun, fun experiment, I guess. And uh, first time, not bad. Get the nervous jitters out of the way. Now I think I can be a little bit more relaxed. Good, good, good. We got some feedback from people on our first episode. So we're going to start with a little segment here, uh, which we're going to call The Communicator. our first episode uh we had 78 downloads in two weeks that's not too bad for a first podcast so uh, i had that question remember about uh, peter tosh quite a few users wrote in to uh share with me i guess on chris's cupboard uh chris foreman the the guitarist they used to do a, a, a feature on the madness website called chris's cupboard where they interviewed him and uh, he, he actually talked about this. This was a post back in 2010. So I think three or four people sent this to me. So thank you for sending this. Uh, Chris wrote, there was some confusion over the writer of the tune we had been quote inspired by for the music. And someone thought Peter Tosh had written the original version, which was a long way from the truth. He had nothing to do with it. So apparently there was another song that they either kind of used as the basis for, um, don't quote me on that, or uh, as the backing music or something, and, and they assumed it was Peter Tosh, and so they gave him a writing credit for it, which is not necessarily a bad thing for Peter Tosh, because if you know anything about music royalties, that writing credit, that's a lot of money. So I'm sure he made bank off of that. But thank you to everybody who wrote in to share that. We also had uh, a very lovely uh, email from Robert from Michigan. He had some very, very nice things to say. Thank you, Robert. He also wrote, I feel obliged to point out Madness was actually not a one-hit wonder in the United States. It must be love managed to get to number 33 and spend five weeks in the top 40. I didn't realize that. That must have been under my yeah. radar. I hadn't realized that either. And I guess it's, um, it, it counts. It's not that subjective. Uh, number 33 um, is still the sort of thing that pr probably evades a lot of people's radar um, when it was on the charts back then. So right. hey, if it, if it charted in the top 40, 
I, I say it counts. So yeah. no, no slight intended to madness. No, none intended. Exactly. So thank you to everybody who wrote in. Um, overwhelmingly, very, very positive. We have people on both sides of the Atlantic uh, telling us uh, to keep them coming. They really enjoyed the first episode. Uh, one of the things that, that, that we've been going for with this, Polly, when you and I were first planning this out is we want to have something not only for people who are new to Madness, but also for the longtime fans of the band. And quite a few people who have been longtime fans, some who've been fans from the get-go, from the North London Invaders days, uh, actually wrote in and said they had never heard that Machina song, that Night Train to Cairo, and that they really enjoyed that. They were very pleasantly surprised that there was something new there that they could pick up too. So, um, so that makes me really happy. So thank you to everybody who, who wrote in, contacted us. Uh, best way to reach us is on Facebook, the Stateside Madness page. Um, but we really appreciate you guys listening and we're hoping to make this a regular thing. Absolutely, we, we wanna follow it the whole way through. We've got many weeks to do it and much, much more music to cover. So there ought to be quite a few episodes. All right, so tonight's episode, we're going to uh, talk about Madness's first album, One Step Beyond. Polly, have you heard anything uh, recently about the album One Step Beyond? Wasn't there recently a re-release? Yeah, somebody said it has been re-released um, on vinyl. Uh, somebody, I think, uh, wrote in to the, the group discussion about it and said that it's recently charted again, which is hugely encouraging and pretty exciting, I would think. Um, the note I'm looking at here says it was at number eight uh, for new vinyl releases, which couldn't be better. I mean, that's fantastic. That was in the UK, actually, too, not here in the US. That's pretty, pretty high to, to chart. Yeah, considering, considering it was only like a limited release of a thousand thousand LPs or something. So it, it like it, it popped onto the the top 10 for like a week and then i think it disappeared again once all those thousand copies sold out yeah so let's let's hope uh it stays in uh people's memories and people uh still continue to appreciate it and maybe you never know might pop up again cool one step beyond just before it had come out of course um you know they were they were in existence this was their first release so that means there is a little bit of history prior to um, the record coming out. And before they were fully formed and um, you know, appeared as the band Madness, the lineup that we think of today, uh, they were the North London Invaders. And well, the Invaders, in fact, uh, it turns out that there was another band called the Invaders as happens a lot with bands. And so a name change was, was in order and they came up with North London Invaders. Uh, it started out that it was Barson, Chrissy, Boy, and Tomo. And I guess the idea was that it was a, it was a fairly standard development of a band. Kids hanging out, um, seeing what they can do, just giving it a go. You know, maybe they show up for practice, maybe they don't. Maybe some other person shows up. It was a bit of in and out with the band and kind of a loosely... Uh, affiliated group. Uh, it really started to form into something when they brought John Hasler on, who played drums, um, poorly according to everybody. And then they later brought on 
uh, Chad Smash. He played bass originally for them. Later on, they brought in a guy named, I'm going to try this, I'm going to say Dickron Tulane. Uh, apologies if the pronunciation's wrong. Um, and he did vocals. So, of course, we had Barson on keyboards, Chrissy Boy on guitar, Tom on sax, Hazler on drums, Chaz on bass, and uh, Dickron on vocals. Um, and, you know, they, they played around with it. Uh, get mad at each other, somebody would leave. Uh, they brought Suggs in briefly, and he was summarily booted out, something to do with he had more interest in watching soccer. And, um, you know, it was fairly fluid for a long, long time. They do make it a point, a lot of the guys, um, to credit John Hasler as the sort of force that kind of got things rolling for him. Uh, he wrote a lot of the songs. He stepped aside a little bit and did the management and allowed other people to come into the band. And they say for that brief period of time where they were the North London Invaders, he was sort of the glue that made it sort of officially a band. And if it wasn't for him playing that role, there wouldn't be a band for them, for the other guys who eventually became you know, madness that we think of to um, even bother to show up. So they've, he's been given a nice nod by a couple of the guys and acknowledged for the important role he played in North London Invaders. Um, so all this is happening around 1976 and they're doing little backyard shows and things like that at small clubs and uh, not quite making a go of it yet. But you know, if they went on like that for a couple of years, about 1977, then they brought Suggs back in. And when Suggs came around about that time, then they brought in Betters and they brought in Woody. And there you go, that's the classic lineup. So they continued on as Northland Innovators. At some point they decided a name changes was with um, in order. And no, they didn't go straight to Madness. They were briefly Morris and the Miners and then, of course, about 1979, they were official and they were about to be heading into the recording studio to do One Step Beyond. There starts the story. Very cool. And there's a story, too, about um, how they got the recording contract with Stiff Records, right, with Dave Robertson. Have you heard the story about the wedding? I did. Um, so I, I guess if memory serves, um, Dave Robertson was really kind of pursuing the band, interested, had heard a bit of buzz about them, but wasn't finding them out and about, I guess is kind of what it was. And see, I guess it was, he was always missing a chance to catch up with these guys because uh, he felt like he might be interested in signing them. Why don't you take the story from there? Well, yeah, so he, uh, he and his fiance Rosemary were getting married and so he said, you know what? I've been wanting to hear these guys' madness. Why don't I hire them to play our wedding? Which has got to be the absolute bravest or most stupid thing I've ever heard, one or the other. Because, I mean, that could have gone sideways so, so quickly. But uh, apparently they rocked it at the wedding. Um, I guess Elvis Costello was a, a guest at the wedding and he was dancing. And uh, so it was basically, it was the wedding band slash audition. Uh, so he signed them and uh, then he brought them into 
Eden Studios in West London. They recorded the album One Step Beyond over a three-week period uh, with uh, Clive Langer and Alan Winstanley, and who we mentioned in our previous podcast. And the album was released October 9th, 1979. Before we talk about the music, I think, at least for me, one of the most iconic things about this album is the cover art. When I was in high school, Madness really wasn't that well known, uh, at least not in, in Chicago where I'm from. And I remember that there was a, a gentleman that I had met, his name was Perry Hardy. And um, I remember I was visiting him and his girlfriend, AC, and he had on his wall a giant poster of the cover from One Step Beyond. And I was just totally in awe. And he goes, well, that's a band called Madness. You haven't heard of them. I said, of course I've heard of Madness. So that, that image, that iconic image, I mean, that I think is forever enshrined in the minds of, of fans is this is madness, which is also, it's interesting too, because Chaz Smash is not in that image on the cover. He's on the back cover doing his nutty dance. But at the time this was recorded, he wasn't actually considered a member of the band, was he? Yeah, I don't have a lot of background into um, what uh, or what or the rationale was why they didn't consider him an official member at that point. But no, so he is in the the, the back cover doing his his uh, infamous dance, which supposedly the the kind of exaggerated dance moves that he does at the time uh, that was because he wasn't supposed to be on the stage and he was dancing that way to get the bouncers off of him that by, by these kind of exaggerated movements with his <laughs> elbows and stuff, they couldn't grab him. That's what I heard. Um, so anyway, back to the album cover. So uh, it's inspired by the back cover of uh, an album called Handsome by Kilburn and the High Roads. That's one of Ian Dury's bands and Ian Dury was a huge influence on Madness. Um, and the, the title of the picture on the back cover was called Paul Hangs Loose. And I looked it up and it's just this guy, he's got his knees bent kind of the way Barson's knees are bent on the cover of One Step Beyond. I mean, I can kind of see the inspiration, but I mean, I, I, not really. Yeah, uh, to, to look at the picture on um, Kilburn and the High Roads, I've only seen the back cover of that album, I guess, and um, because it's posted so much online. And I didn't really connect it with Ian Drury and it was sort of, uh, I mistook it for a folk album cover. The guy on the back, who I guess was one of the roadies, you know, the longer hair, deep shaggy beard. I just assumed it was some hippie dressed up in a suit and tie. And that was the, that was the inside joke of that picture. So it was funny to think that that inspired, you know, the look of the album. Yeah. And then, so like when, when they're doing this pose and then when they're doing their nutty walk and all their videos and everything, so they're all lined up according to height. I don't know if you ever noticed that. So Lee being the short one is always in the back and they're apparently to take this picture because that it, they're really tightly packed together and that is not a natural pose. Apparently they're hanging on a pipe and that's how they were able to, to get that kind of bent over kind of pose that they're in. Uh, the photographer for the front cover was someone named Cameron McVeigh. And uh, it's, again, iconic, iconic photo. So enough about the cover. Should we listen to the music? <laughs> I think we should. That sounds great. Hey, you, don't watch that. Watch this. This is the heavy, heavy monster sound. The nuttiest sound around. 
So if you're coming off the street and you're beginning to feel the heat, well, listen, Buster, you better start to move your feet to the rockinest, rock-steady beat of madness. One step beyond. So one step beyond. Uh, it was it's a cover, as Madness would come to do many covers, and uh, of course by Prince Buster. And it was the B side to Al Capone. Now, um, you know Prince Buster. The influence that he had on Madness was pretty profound. I can imagine to look back at that time in the, the emergence of the Scott revival and um, the music they were listening to. If you listen to a lot of older original Jamaican ska, um, of course, it's what drives the ska revival sound. But, um, you know, Prince Buster being probably the most prolific writer of ska, um, it's no wonder that those were the records that were brought by the Jamaican diaspora when they moved to um, the UK or moved into Europe, uh, which you know starts around the 1950s, post-World War II, and in the 60s and early 70s, of course, a very, very large amount of people are leaving the Caribbean and moving to different uh, places to escape poverty. And the irony being um, showing up in England at a time when there's a fair amount of poverty happening then and a fair amount of unemployment. And so the going wasn't always that smooth. And um, to know that these cultures are merging and that the straight, you know, Anglo bloodline white youth are picking up those records and listening to it, very, very moving to me. Uh, but how could you not? How could you not listen to Prince Buster and not be moved by that and not want to really uh, have that be a big part of your life as a kid. I, I, I feel envious. Um, I don't really think of anything like that um, happening in the United States that I think I would really be that into. So anyways, back to it. So of course it was written by Prince Buster um, and they would go on to cover other Prince Buster songs. It started out as an instrumental. It's mostly instrumental on Prince Buster's albums. And I think they actually did twice, they did the song essentially twice uh, to make it closer to a regular length song um, for the album. It peaked at number 76 when it was released. And I kind of got to put it out there. It's a different type of song. Of course, that brief spoken or yelled intro and then an instrumental song. Great first track to have on a freshman album, uh, different, really stood out. Um, get back to the cover album a little bit. I did not even know what the cover album looked at like for years. Um, wasn't until I was in college in 1988 that I even picked it up and you know held it in my hands. Uh, when I got 
one step beyond. It had been given to me by a guy on a TDK tape. That's, you know, one of the ones that are half an hour on one side. There was nothing on the other side. So I didn't even get the full album. I think it went up somewhere to about a little bit past the land of hope and glory. That's all I knew of the album. A guy handed it to me because he listened to One Step Beyond and thought it was a novelty song. He thought, because I had at that time like Weird Al in the Dr. Demento show, he thought this was like a collection of silly songs or something. And he, it based on pretty much the idea of the lead track One Step Beyond. I kind of get that and I kind of don't. It's uh, different, it's strange, it's weird, but it's not kind of the silly, well, you could call it silly too. But anyways, that's my introduction to One Step Beyond, the song and the album. Uh, and thankfully years later, I did pick up the album for myself and we'll speak a little bit more about that later. But that is my take on the song. Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, this perception of, of them as a novelty band, because I really think that uh, in the United States, that, that is how they were perceived initially. I think Rolling Stone, even um, in one of their early reviews, compared Madness to the Blues Brothers in that respect, this idea of this novelty act doing covers. Um, I don't think that a lot of people realize that, you know, this was a, a serious band. Um, so... My first exposure to this song came on MTV. I know I mentioned that in our first episode, but uh, it was not the first song I had heard by Madness. The first song that I had heard was, uh, it was Our House. So I knew from that video that Suggs was the singer. And then I saw this video for One Step Beyond and Suggs isn't singing. And I'm thinking, what's this guy doing? You know, he's, he's doing the you know, mouth percussion, but he's not singing anything and I'm thinking, what, what's going on here? And then the other thing is I, I had this perception. I thought Madness had to be like 40, 40 people in the band because it's not just, you know, the, the, the guys plus Chaz. I mean, in that video, there's um, Chalky and Tox and um, what's the guy's name in the beginning? Farron. I mean, there's all these people in this video. I'm thinking, how many people are in this freaking band? I, I just, I had this perception <laughs> that this was huge, you know, that there's like 40 people in the band. And the other thing that I, I want to mention too, so because you mentioned Weird Al, um, there's a, a podcast, it's an 80s music podcast, it's called Surely You Can't Be Serious. And one of the guys that does this podcast had said something to the effect of, um, you know that a band is made it when Weird Al either parodies them or, or does a polka party. Well, Weird Al didn't do any madness, but I would like to suggest that you know a band has made it when they are made fun of on Beavis and Butthead. And this song was, was <laughs> this song was on Beavis and Butthead. And as a matter of fact, one of them said something to the effect of with, with Suggs, he said something to the effect of, is this guy gonna sing or what? And I'm like, ah, that's exactly what I thought. <laughs> so so yeah, to me that <laughs> that's that to me is, is the cultural milestone, right? When you're on Beavis and Butthead. So um, so that's that's my story about One Step Beyond, but it, it is a good song. Well, I'm, I'm not going to give up on Weird Al doing a parody of Madness. No. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that to the grave.
come tonight I found it hard to say She thought I'd had enough of her Why can't she see She's lovely to me But I like to stay here My Girl. So this was written by Mike Barson, right? The keyboardist. Uh, it was written about uh, Mike's girlfriend at the time, a lady named Kirsten Rogers. Mike didn't only write it. Actually, originally, he used to be the singer for this song. For a long time, uh, singing duties were shared among some of the band members. And uh, Mike used to sing this. And you can actually hear Mike singing it on the B-side of the 12-inch version of Return of the Lost Palmas 7. All right, so uh, this song was inspired by uh, an Elvis Costello song called Watching the Detectives. And I can, I can see some of the similarities to it, like with the, the, the beat particularly. Uh, it was released as a single in the UK in 1980, uh, re reached number three over there. I don't think it ever charted over here in the US. Uh, four years later, Tracy Ullman's cover, My Guy's Mad at Me, uh, was released in the UK. And that one actually had betters on bass, betters from Madness. Um, Tracy Ullman, I, I think, is better known to the U.S. fans from the Tracy Ullman Show. She's better known, I think, as a comedian than a singer here. And the Tracy Ullman Show spawned The Simpsons. The Simpsons was... Oh, I know it. Yes. The Simpsons was actually a spinoff of the Tracy Ullman <laughs> Show. Um, and then the other thing about this song that I, I found that was really interesting is David Bowie actually used Woody's drumbeat from this song as the rhythm for his song, Ashes to Ashes. I didn't know that, but he actually admitted it as such, that, that he actually admitted that he lifted the drum beat from this song. So um, let's listen to the two side by side, and you can tell me what you think, Polly. Yeah, so it's uh, certainly interesting. It's great that somebody like Bowie uh, would acknowledge that. Um, you know, there's a lot of inadvertent copying in music. Um, there's, while you could say there's infinite combinations of things, inevitably people land on the same thing a lot. And so the fact that Bowie was uh, big enough to say, yeah, I liked it and I took it, I think that's quite admirable. Many of his admirable qualities. One of the things that really struck me about My Girl is the subject matter. Um, it's this idea, and man, I, could, I, I really can relate to Mike Barson in this, you know, the idea that, you know, I just want to stay home and watch TV and my girl just doesn't get it. You know, she's mad at me. She wants to go see the film. You know, it's, it's, it's an introvert song, right? Absolutely. I mean, I like this type of songwriting and this type of storytelling. I've said that in the last podcast. I'll probably say it again. But you had, you had mentioned uh, the sort of somber feel of it, and I've got a completely different take. I fear, like, for the young stupid 20-something male. It speaks to um, what it's like to be a young male 
making a mess of things all the time and belonging for somebody to understand it. So for me, I'm sure for a lot of dopey guys, it is, it like resonates in a very visceral sense. So what can I say? There's a lot of reasons to love that song. Okay, so back to Night Boat to Cairo. Uh, of course, it was on the first episode because it was on the Work, Rest, and Play EP. Mike Barson uh, wrote this originally, wanted it to be instrumental, um, and they played around with it for a little while, and um, Suggs came up with lyrics for it. Uh, the bass line, heavily borrowed from Gangsters. Um, another thing, if we uh, played those side by side, you could definitely see the similarities. And then um, it was originally just that, that uh, six-piece instrumentation. Uh, strings were added later. Arson, I guess, really wanted to go with the Egyptian sound. Um, and production thought they wanted gypsy music. Um, and inevitably, I guess, that Arson won out. Um, and the title of the song is never mentioned in the song except for the shouting by Suggs. And I'll, I'll say it till the day I die, I think just shouting stuff intermittently in songs, I can't get enough of it. Uh, I wish more people did it. And it certainly adds to that adventurous sort of feel of being in a foreign land and the sort of vibe that the, the whole song evokes. So we, we did talk a lot about this in the first episode. So if you didn't tune in for the first episode, I recommend that you do that. But there's one other thing I want to throw in uh, that I, I run into, particularly living in a, an urban area like Chicago. Every time I play this song, somebody comes back to me and says, play that Mexican song again. I don't know uh, uh, much about Mexican music. I don't know if this is like a, for some reason, everybody I play this for thinks it's Mexican. Weird. I would I would imagine the the string element probably adds a little bit to that, and people mistake it for mariachi style. It's got strings and it's got horns. I don't know. I've not, that's not a comment I've actually heard from people before. I love you too much. 
All right. So believe me, this is one of the uh, the original songs from back when John Hassler was still in the band. You mentioned John Hassler earlier in the podcast. Uh, and he co-wrote the song with Mike Barson. So the interesting thing about, to me, about this entire album is you can tell that Madness are still trying to find their sound. And, you know, some of the songs you know, are, are very heavily ska-influenced, Prince Buster-influenced. But then you have something like this one, which is like a 1950s-style, like, R&B, like the coasters. You know what I mean? It, it totally, totally opposite end of, of the spectrum for me. And it definitely owes a lot to um, Tamla Motown. But the, the thing that I find interesting, and I'm, I'm, I tend to notice like weird, quirky things in music. And one of the things I notice with this one is the, the tempo, the tempo. So it's got a really weird song structure where it adds one extra bar to the end of each double verse. So it's like you're counting one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, and, and there's this extra beat thrown in there. And if you're not listening for it, it, it it's unexpected. And I think it gets people's attention even when they don't realize that they're doing it um, or, or that, that that's why they're noticing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, just a little bit. Um, it's uh, even for the time, it was hardly, um, you know, a common theme for a song uh, about kind of being called out for infidelity. Um, so I thought it was not necessarily the bravest song in the world, but it just showed that they weren't, uh, that scared to, uh, break away from the formula of their peers and, you know, other new bands. They weren't playing it safe already on the first album. Okay. All right. So next we have Land of Hope and Glory. So, um, Polly, you were very kind to let me introduce this song. And I don't know if you know this, but uh, Lee, <laughs> Lee J. Thompson is my favorite member of Madness. He always has been. I absolutely adore the man. Um, he's not afraid to put himself out there and be weird and call attention to himself. And um, not to mention that his musical talent is just amazing. Uh, when I was watching, boy, 
The Commitments. Do you remember the movie The Commitments? I, I do, actually. I, I'm still quite fond of that movie. And, and, and one of the, uh, the musicians said something like he wants to play sax like, like Lee Thompson. And I'm just like, oh, you know, it's like, yes, that's my guy. So, um, yeah, no, I, uh, Lee, Lee is my favorite member of the band. Um, and I, I kind of alluded to this a little bit in our first episode. So Lee had a little bit of a, a, a criminal past in his juvenile days. Um, and this uh, song is based on some time he spent at a juvenile reform school called Stamford House. He got sent away. He uh, uh, stole one too many times. And uh, I remember reading, it, 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 he had said something to the effect of that uh, uh, Chris and, and Mike were the only ones that visited him while he was uh, sent away. And, and that that was very touching for him, but that was also very hard for him. Uh, so in the beginning, the names that he calls out, Bridges, Sharky, Nutley, and Jackson, those are all the names of real boys that he shared a dormitory with in this, this uh, reform school. So uh, he actually kind of gives them a shout out there. And it really it kind of gives this picture of what it must have been like for these boys in this kind of environment. Uh, you know, very rigorous, very regimented. You know, you're up at 630 uh, you eat breakfast because you're not going to eat again until 1230. And then for me, the most colorful image is when he talks about um, in the lyrics, I pick up the floor for juicy butts and I'll make myself a smoke. I mean, I'm not a smoker, but I know a lot of smokers. And this idea of you're just jonesing so bad for nicotine that you're just going to pick up whatever little pieces you can find and roll yourself a cigarette with a piece of an envelope. It's like, it, it, it's ew, but it's like, wow. I mean, that, that kind of desperation that comes through there. Uh, so in the very beginning, uh, the, the drum intro, Woody was still kind of getting his, his bearings as a drummer. And so he had said that this is what he thought that military drumming would sound like. Uh, of course, you know, it, it, as time went on, he kind of realized, okay, that's really not. But those snares in the beginning, that's what he was going for was that kind of a military sound. So I thought that was interesting. And um, then the very end, uh, when they're uh, doing the outro, apparently that was the, the boy stomping on a bunch of nails on a wooden, wooden floor. I guess they thought that that was supposed to sound like uh, hobnail boots or something. I'm not sure. But um, I, I, I love this song. It, again, it's um, not, not um, it's a very, very different sound from, from a lot of their other sounds. Anything Fair you want to add? Okay. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I didn't have anything to add that you didn't already get to. So. Oh. All right, leave I'm gonna, me out of that one. Okay, but I'm gonna let you, I'm gonna let you introduce the prince. I imagine you have a lot to say about this one. Buster, he sold the heat with a rock steady beat. An earthquake is erupting, but not in Orange Street. A ghost dance is preparing. You got to help us with your feet If you're not in a mood to dance Step back, grab yourself a seat This may not be uptown Jamaica But we promise you a treat I bust the bummy over with your bogus dance Shuffle me up my feet Even if I kept on running I'd never get to Orange Street So I'd say there's nothing left to say For the man who's dead to beat 
so The Prince, their tribute to their hero, um, and written, written by Lee. Uh, so, and thinking about this song over the last week and, and kind of what to talk about, I just felt like I'd want to point out a little bit about the lyrics because if you listen to the words and the sort of name dropping of the songs that they're talking about, nearly everything appears on Prince Buster's fabulous greatest hits. Um, so they're talking about Earthquake, they're talking about uh, Freeze Out on Orange Street, they're talking about Ghost Dance, um, which everybody should run home right now and listen to Ghost Dance. Although I suppose if you're listening to a podcast, you can probably find that online. But no, please actually go home and listen to it on LP. But that was the inspiring part about Prince Buster. Um, great beats. Um, brought that sound system vibe to vinyl in that Jamaican style and that ska beat. And what else could you could you say about the guy? Uh, it's no wonder that he's referenced by all the ska revival bands. Bad Manners, Specials, Selector, everybody. Um, you know, it's a common thread through that whole movement. So the first version, um, not the album version, but the first version was released on uh, Jerry Dahmer's two-tone label. And um, it was the label's second single. And then they can't put it on, on the Stiff Records record, right? Because they'd run into some, some infringement issues. The second version was actually the John Peel session they recorded in 1979. And John Peel, uh, for Americans that don't know, he was a, a, a well-known British DJ that uh, often would, uh, if he had took an interest in an up and coming band, he would invite them to do a recording, play it on his show. He'd get a lot of interest for him. So this version that you're hearing on the album is actually the third version they recorded. And some of the band members have said that this is their weakest version. They don't like this version as much. Very well done. Okay. So um, now on a, uh, personally for me, and, and I, I, I I'm opening myself up here and I am going to get a lot of criticism for this, I know. Um, and I get that this was oh Madness's, yeah. I get this was Madness's first single and without this, there would not be Madness as we know it, but I don't like this song. I don't like it. Really? Uh, I, yeah, it, it just, it, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't seem to have the, the oomph that some of their other songs have. So that's just my opinion. I mean, don't, don't at me. <laughs> don't, please don't send me hate mail. Um, it just, this song just doesn't do anything for me. Well, I, I think there's a little room for honesty here because if we go through album by album and just talk about how great every track is, we won't, do much to enhance our credibility anyways. So if you want to say honestly, you don't like the Prince, by all means, just say it. Because let's face it, they've had a lot, a lot of music out there and not everything can be a winner. But on the Prince, I would, I would totally say that I love that song. <laughs> all right. And moving on to Tarzan's Nuts.
this one's it, it's interesting. It, uh, this is another cover. There's a lot of covers on this album. Uh, one source that I looked up said there were four, but my count there's five. Uh, and Tarzan's Nuts, it was based on the uh, theme song uh, for the Ron Eli TV show. Uh, the theme song was written by Sidney Lee, and Sidney Lee gets a writing credit here. So the, the opening banter, that's Chaz Smash and a guy named Tox, T-O-K-S, that's his nickname. I don't know what his real name is. Uh, he, he's one of the band's entourage. He's been with them since the beginning. But um, reportedly, they couldn't get Tox to do it on stage. He, he had a case of stage fright. Um, I, he's also in the One Step Beyond video. There's a point where uh, Chalky's doing his nutty dance and Tox is just standing behind him, just standing. It's like this guy had like major, major stage fright or something. While we're on the subject of things that maybe we don't necessarily like, this, this song is, is a throwaway. It's a throwaway for me. You know, it, it really, you know, we talk about why is there this perception of madness being a, a novelty band? This is why. This kind of song is why. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, it, it's, it's not my, uh, not my favorite. No, I, I will side with you on this one. Okay. Um, you know, I, I've actually never could work out the words at the beginning. Um, after that, it's just a little bit of a rapid fire instrumental, short song. In one respect, the nice, short, concise song I think is great. Um, you know, the late 70s were a very indulgent time for artists and at least in having the short songs and the album jam packed with 15 songs shows they're not taking themselves too seriously and that's a very very minor thing if i if i have to say so myself is not being pretentious and showy so good on them for 15 songs on an album all right so our next song is in the middle of the night Nice man, George, who's agent on the corner. Not very rich, but never any poorer. Georgey old George, a happy 63. Not very tall, but healthier than me. He whistles timeless tunes as he saunters down the street. Springs in his legs and elastic in his feet. But in the middle of the night, he steals through your garden, gives your hosiery a Oh, I love it. Do you? What do you love about it? Oh, well, it's a song about a pervert. I mean... There seem to be a few songs maybe there about... there should be more of those. I was going to say, there seem to be a few <laughs> songs about perverts on this album. But, um, so I was reading, uh, Suggs had, had said that uh, the, the idea came from a, a shop he used to work in, uh, in Clerkenwell. And the owner of the shop 
was one of those guys that was always getting deals, you know, it's like, Oh, you know, it fell off a truck or whatever. And particularly with damaged goods, it's like he would always buy stuff really cheap that was damaged and then try to sell it. There was a story about like a, a, a wheel of cheese that was like awful and moldy and the guy bought it cheap thinking he could sell it. But one of the, the shipments that this, this, uh, shopkeeper had bought was a bunch of underwear that had been water damaged and again he's thinking he could sell it really cheap and nobody wanted it so it just was left to sit to rot in this guy's basement and so then Suggs when he was working for this guy came across all this underwear concealed in the basement and he had this inspiration for this guy this underwear taker right that's uh, uh gonna gonna steal people's underwear and hide it so um uh, interesting inspiration but uh, do you want to talk more about um about the song well just a little bit i mean i think it's a it's a great um you know a great three minute pop song uh the melody is really really tight on that one it could you could put any lyrics in there and it would have been fantastic but they put in lyrics about an undergarment thief um and it's fantastic it should be played next to next, uh, side by side with the Kinks, uh, well-respected man. I mean, it's beautiful. There's a lot of like really clever lyrical double entendres in there. I mean, there's this one place where Sugg sings that he's filling underwear with dread. You have this kind of like personification, right? Where you have this inanimate object that can't can't feel things but then there's also this idea of filling underwear where it's like, oh, double meeting and it's weird. <laughs> Um, and and the, then the shouting in the beginning, that's Lee. I guess he went out in the street and they recorded him shouting in the street and people heard him and I guess people started running and asking him if he was okay, if something was wrong. Because, you know, he's shouting like he's the newest agent out on the street. Um, yeah, I was fun fact, he, he, he's not okay. <laughs> see, now that you know that he's my favorite, you're gonna be, you're gonna be doing that. I, I see what you're doing. Um, there were a couple of things that were a little confusing to me as an American, uh, like, for example, they're referring to the current bun, which I had to look that up. Apparently, that is a reference to uh, a British tabloid newspaper called The Sun. There's no way I would have known that. And quite frankly, when oh. I heard it, I thought he was singing about a cummerbund. <laughs> I thought... I thought he was talking about the juicy butts in Land of Hope and Glory, but oh, that just shows where my mind goes. Ah, your mind is on juicy butts. Okay. Um, then the other thing that I found out about this song is uh, Woody, uh, the drummer, he had said that this song was the most painful but most rewarding song I've ever done. And again, uh, when they were first starting out, I, I, I understand that drummers have this tendency to really overplay. And they try to put all kinds of drum fills and everything and, and play everything. And um, Clive Langer had Woody really pair it back and do a very minimalist drumming, which is what Woody described as, as being painful, but then rewarding, because I think then he started to realize this idea of less is more. Yeah, that's the job of the producer. Make them keep it simple. and. Uh... It paid off in this case.
So shall we talk about the bread and breakfast, man? Please do. Okay. So uh, you, you know, obviously as a fan, you know who the bed and breakfast man was. Okay. Uh, so it's about John Hasler, who we mentioned a couple of times already. And um, so I'm guessing then he was a bit of a mooch. And he was maybe the original couch surfer. Um, and yeah, so he was a, a clinger on and uh, sleeping where he needed to sleep and eating other people's food. Got to kind of admit that I've been there myself. I, I was going to say, it's kind of sad that, that I think he's best known, John Hassler is best known to Madness fans as the bed breakfast man. But like you said earlier, I mean, he was so crucial in the formation of the band and, and every, I mean, uh, you know, as you said, he started as the drummer, then he was the singer for a while and after they fired Suggs and then uh, ultimately he became the manager of the band and uh, was responsible for like the accounting and a lot of other stuff where, I mean, you really need somebody that is, is honest and, and reliable and he, and he was, he was all of that. And I, I'm not lying when I say there would be no madness without John Hassler. Um, so I think it's almost kind of a shame that that's really the only thing that, that most fans would associate him with is, is being this, this moocher, as you say. That's true. And I don't know, I, I haven't heard uh, much tale of his uh, uh, not going forward with the band or where he was in those early years or what his relationship would be. Um, so I'll just say I hope he's is all right uh, with how everything went down. And who knows what he's up to now? Does anybody know what he's up to now? Maybe that's what you write in about to Stateside Madness. Give us an update. We're gonna get inundated, but that's okay. That's good. So, uh, <laughs> and, and um, originally this song was sung by Chris, Chris Foreman, the, the guitarist. And um, it, the John Peel session that, that uh, was recorded. Chris was actually the one singing it. Remember how I said earlier they used to share singing duties. Um, I, I, one of the I things, do. one of the things that strikes me about this song, and do you notice any similarity between this and and the uh, the old song, "The Tears of a Clown"? Uh, yeah, the older one, yeah. I mean, certainly there would be similarities to the beat version, but uh, absolutely. I mean, they were relying very heavily on Motown yes. um, for a lot of their inspiration. So yeah, yeah it's, and, it's quite noticeable. Yeah. I didn't even know the beat did a version of Tears of the Clown. It shows you how much I know. Uh, but yeah, Motown, huge, huge influence on the boys. And I think it's really, it's interesting that there's still this perception of Madness as a ska band. And yes, they had some ska influence. And I think it's, you know, again, the Prince, the first single they put out was on the two-tone label which was known as a ska label but um the the band members themselves have said over and over we are not a ska band please don't call us a ska band but i think because of you know this early influence and it, there are other bands where this hasn't happened i mean in excess their first two albums were very heavily ska influenced but nobody would dare say in excess is a ska band right so I, I think that that's unfortunate that they've kind of been pigeonholed when they have all this huge variety of influences like Motown, like Smokey Robinson, right? Um, and I, I think they kind of get short shift there. 
Blade Alley. I've I've been there. I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm glad that you are. Uh, uh, you're having fun with it. That's good. So this is another one that's written and sung by Lee J. Thompson, the saxophonist, my guy. This, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, songs about perverted men. This song to me, this is. <laughs> This is a nervous boy losing his innocence. Um, I mean, the name itself, Razorblade Alley, is uh, kind of implies prostitution. Uh, I guess it, the title came from a movie in 78 about the Vietnam War. It was called The Boys and Company C. And um, uh, one of the uh, Marines got the clap from a prostitute. And he said, I feel like I'm pissing razor blades. And so that's where the name of this is coming from. But I mean, this whole idea of, you know, I didn't talk too much, you know, he's this shy boy. And, and there's this woman of ill repute, perhaps, that is uh, kind of, I guess, initiating him into manhood. But then there's the, the downside of that, you know, the razor blades, the risks, the, you know, the disease and stuff. But uh I, I like this song. I, for me, what really makes this song is the bass. Better's bass really just stands out here. Um, and it's um, heavy jazz influence too. I mean, this is not, again, you know, you can really see the band are, are trying to find their sound. You know, they have all these different uh, aspects that are coming together on this album. I know, what do you think of this song? You know, pretty much just what you said. It is just showing a little, little bit of variety, a little bit of range for the band. Uh, not uh, an unfun song. I love the early, early videos of them doing this live and seeing Tomo walking out front and watching what the other guys do in the meantime because they're all of a sudden not singing. So, no, I, I find it an endearing kind of song. And given your explanation now about prostitution, my I've been there joke doesn't seem quite as funny.
Sun Lake, uh, the Tchaikovsky song, and arranged by Barson. Um, an interesting take and a good, good use of two and a half minutes on the album. Um, not the first people in the world to think of transposing classical music and turning it into something poppy, um, but a great, great take on it. Enough of the original sound and the original vibe of the song is there and a very respectful cover and very, very cool song. So fantastic. And watch it on Dance Craze. Introducing uh, a, a generation of, of ska fans and skinheads to classical music, right? Yeah, and you gotta think, there's gonna be a few people out there that don't even associate with the classical music. That might be the only version they're familiar with. It's, it's, uh, it's that convincing of a song. I don't like that version as much as I like they did a, uh, a, a cover of In the Hall of the Mountain King. Madness covers of classical music. I, I think I prefer the, the Mountain King, but it, you know, it, it's good for what it is. So we're going to now switch from classical music to rock and roll, rocking in A flat. The name of the song, Rockin' in A-flat, that is a, a pun. This, it's actually the, the flat symbol from a musical notation. So it's a double meaning. It's, it's the musical key, A-flat, but then it's also rocking in A-flat, which is what Brits would call an apartment. So this song was originally by a pub band called uh, Bazooka Joe. Mike Barson's brother, Dan, used to sing for Bazooka Joe. Um, and interestingly enough, Bazooka Joe never actually released this song. The only other band that's ever uh, released this song besides Madness was a Coventry band called the Cab Stars. And uh, another interesting thing about Bazooka Joe, uh, their bassist for a while was a guy named Stuart Goddard. And you might know him better, Polly, as Adam Ant. Uh, I do know him as Adam Ant. And uh, that would be an interesting thing. Maybe I'm, I'm going to look up that tonight to see how Adam's doing. Well, I was gonna say, it's a shame that he never did anything after his days in Bazooka Joe, right? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, um, okay. So since you like songs about perverts, here's one for you, Mummy's Boy.
so we did we didn't get to the the verse about um uh the uh him being 30 and him being i'll just say she being not 30. um so that's a bit odd um yeah him being 30 her being 12. a uh, peculiar line to have in the song but i suppose it does describe whoever they're getting at so there you go yeah so uh, whoever they're getting at is actually mark bedford wrote the song uh he the inspiration was one of his teachers because he heard one of his teachers at school say that he still lived at home with his parents and so i guess in his adolescent mind he kind of formulated this whole idea of you know mummy's boy he lives at home with his parents um and betters has said because he acknowledges it's kind of creepy uh it's best to listen to as it was written as a teenager who wondered if the adult world was going to be how he imagined it and then we had the part that Suggs improvised at the end, which you didn't get to hear on this clip where he's like, knickers, knackers, knockers. So that, then he, he says, Suggs even said that uh, he got overexcited and kind of turned, in, turned him into a pervert at the end. But I think he was a pervert before that part of the song. This song, I, I, I have to say, just has not aged well. I mean, I guess in, in 79, for a bunch of teenagers, uh, you know, just goofing around, I, I'm sure that it was amusing. But yeah, in 2020, you know, uh, she was 12, he was 30, ew. Yeah, and um, you know, the, the character is not the protagonist of the song, you know, we, at least we've got that. Um, but they're not the only ones. There's a fair amount of music out there that just does not translate into uh, the year 2020. Um, you know, Tom, Tom Jones is, um, Delilah, wow, not a song that um, you can pull off these days, I don't think. So yeah, you know, it, it happens, time goes on and certain themes lose their um, accessibility. So there you go. It's a little uncomfortable now, looking back. So we have a hidden track, Polly. Hidden uh, in the sense that uh, you'd, you'd have to look on the vinyl and count the number of songs that were intended to be there back in the days when you could visually see how many things were on the media you were you were listening to. But yeah, uh, not listed on the album. Yeah, so it's like being part of a secret club. Let's uh, let's listen to the secret song, shall we? So it's another another cover again, and another cover, of course, of Prince Buster, and of course the song where they took the inspiration for their name from. 
So a very, very strong um, cover, very faithful to the original song. And that's a tradition in ska music, uh, you know, dating back to the original ska and the sound system. Um, and uh, the important thing back in the day was that where you were, the music you wanted to hear was. And when it was sound system DJs, of course, that's easy to do. You're playing other people's music. When that transferred over to people doing live music, people still had that same expectation that you were going to hear the song you wanted to hear, regardless of the artist. So that tradition filtered through into the Sky Revival and people covered other people's songs quite readily. So uh, of course we've heard Selector do Madness. Um, we've heard all sorts of people do it live. I don't know how many recorded versions there are of anybody like Specials or Bad Manners doing Madness. I don't recall hearing that myself, but uh, of course we know Selector's done it. Uh, a lot of more regional bands uh, cover that song very faithfully. So I would argue it's probably the most heard ska song by the most artists. And uh, just a fantastic take. I think it's very, very challenging to do a very faithful rendition of a song and not seem cheap doing it. I think when you do a cover song, you're expected to do a very, very fresh original take on it. And you have to be a very quality band to do it so faithfully. And I think it's just fantastic what Madness did with Madness. I have nothing to add to that. That is, wow. Um, I, I know that when they were kicking around ideas for other names after North London and Vader's, after Morris and the Miners, I think Chris suggested Madness is a joke. I don't think he actually intended it to be the name, but for whatever reason, it stuck and it suits him. So there's one last song on the album and it is such a short song. I'm not even going to attempt to, to edit it down. So we're just going to listen to it. Um, chipmunks are go. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. We the chipmunks hear us roar. We the chipmunks hear us roar. Sound off. Chipmunks. Sound off. Chipmunks. One, two, three, four. 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 Did you have a good time tonight, boys? Yes, we sure did. Did you think the time is right, boys? Yes. We sure do. Sound off, chipmunks. Sound off, chipmunks. One, two, three, four. 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 Chipmunks are go. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So the fascinating thing to me about this is that the two people doing uh, credited with writing this song. Chad Smash, who at this point is not a member of the band yet, and his brother, Brendan Smith. And this, this song started off as an encore at the end of their shows. Um, the story goes that Brendan had enlisted himself in the Foreign Legion and then for whatever reason decided that it was not the right choice for him 
and he wanted out so that uh, Chaz helped him escape by hiding him in the trunk of Chaz's car. That's the story. So that's what I think of whenever I hear this kind of a military inspired uh, song. Chaz's brother Brendan is also alleged to have created the original Madness M logo with the Trilby hat. And then eventually, as you know, then that became the Madness logo with the crown. But uh, supposedly Brendan is the one that created the original logo. So uh, military inspired song, uh, as far as I'm concerned, this is another throwaway. It's like, I think maybe they didn't know how to end the, the, the album. And so they threw this in there. Um, I don't, what do you think? I think they needed 51 seconds of something to do, but uh, you put that, you put that story out there. I have not heard that story before. So I, I am a veteran. I'm a former Navy man. And the idea that somebody escapes in the back of a car is just not enough of a story for me. Uh, they don't just let you do that. They will come looking for you. So there's got to be more to that story. So somebody, please, please fill in the rest of that for us. Please do get a hold of us on the Facebook page. And Brandon, you're welcome to do that too. All right. So that is their first album, One Step Beyond. Very, very interesting album. Kind of a little all over the place with the influences. So I'm curious to know, Polly, what is your, what's your favorite track? And then also I'm curious, what's your least favorite track? Okay, so uh, I'm not going to break with our previous episode. I'm just going to say Night Boat to Cairo is my favorite track. Okay. And I'm going to say again, I'm not shy about picking the most popular tracks. And I really feel rocking in a flat is just not, not my favorite song. So uh, I don't think there's going to be too many people um, hunting for me because I say that's not my favorite. Uh, yeah, there you go. Okay. I ranked them. Okay. What about you? Oh, you know, I, I, as soon as I asked you that, I regret, regretted it because I don't really know. I think to me, it's like there's two columns. There's the yes, I like this, the no, I don't. And this album is about equal. I think that there are maybe half the tracks that I think are really, really great. And I think that there are, uh, you know, half of them that I could totally do without. I'm not going to say which or which other than to say that I think, I think for me, the favorite on this album is, is probably Night Boat, but I think um, One Step Beyond is way up there as well. Just because it's impossible to hear it and just not want to get up and dance. You know, it, it's a very... Um, yeah, it's a very kind of kinetic song for me. Last episode, I ended it with a, a, a song that was inspired by Nightboat to Cairo. I'm going to end this episode with a cover version of a song on the album. I'm going to end it with a cover version of My Girl, but it's one that you might not have heard before. I'm not going to do the Tracy Ullman version because everybody's heard that one. This is a cover by a band called Nouvelle Vague. They are a French new wave band. In fact, the name itself, Nouvelle Vague, means new wave in French. And, uh, you know, we were talking uh, earlier about this song and I said how it was kind of a, a, a melancholy uh, topic. Well, uh, this music, I think, really kind of matches that mood. So, so I'm going to leave you guys with that. Um, thank you so much for joining us again. This has been fun, Polly. Thank you. I love doing this with you. Um 
I'm happy to do it. And um, very good. Thank you for having me. What do we decide we're going to do for our next episode? Are we going to do absolutely? I would personally love to do absolutely because it's my favorite album and it's the first madness album I got. So I, I say yes. Okay. We can so, continue to go mostly chronologically for a while. Okay. So uh, we'll see everybody back here in two weeks where we're going to talk about the album Absolutely. And here is Nouvelle Vague. Thanks, everybody. And uh, we'll see you in two weeks. We'll see you in two weeks. I'm going to go do a very madness thing and I'm going to get a beer. Goodbye. Says that.
Told it out.